Hello there and welcome to the Secrets of Organ Playing podcast. I'm your host, Vidas Pinkavichus. Today's guest is Peter Sykes, who is one of the most distinguished and versatile keyboard artists performing and recording today. His playing has variously been called compelling and moving, magnificent and revelatory, and bold, imaginative, and amazingly accurate. His best-selling recording of his organ transcription of Holt's orchestral suite, The Planets, was named the best of 1996 by Audio Review, a super CD by Absolute Sound in 1999, and garnered acolytes in every review. He holds degrees from the New England Conservatory, where he studied with Gabriel Chodos, Blanche uh, Winogron, Muriel Lagasse, Robert Schunemann, and Yuko Hayashi, and Concordia University in Montreal, where he studied with Bernard Legacy. In demand as a teacher and mentor of inspiring uh, professional performers, he is Associate Professor of Music and Chair of the Historical Performance Department at Boston University. Since 1985, he has also served as Director of Music at First Church in Cambridge Congregational. He has been adjudicator for competitions sponsored by the American Guild of Organists, the Royal Canadian College of Organists, and the Bach International Harpsichord Festival in Montreal, as well as the Broadwood Harpsichord Competition in London and the Miami International Organ Competition. A member of the board of the Cambridge Society for Early Music, he is a founding board member and current president of the Boston Clavichord Society. In this conversation, Peter shares his insights, among other things, about his experience of playing the harpsichord, clavichord, and organ, being a versatile musician, loving music for music's sake, and imagining the sound first. Let's go to the show. Peter, I'm so delighted that we're finally having this conversation. Thank you so much for your time and generosity, and welcome to the show. Thank you very much. It's my pleasure to be talking with you. Uh, you know, uh, when I look at, uh, at your work uh, in the field of uh, clavichord and early music, I'm so uh, uh, excited to find uh, Kindred in Seoul because, uh, uh, because we both love the same thing, but basically I, I also enjoy early music and uh, not, I didn't... I don't own the clavichord, but through Pamela Reuter-Finstra, uh, who, who was my professor at Eastern Michigan University, I was introduced to the clavichord, and uh, so we have so much in common. So, uh, for starters, um, let me ask this question, uh, Peter, um, that uh, is very interesting for our listeners, of course. How did you fall in love uh, with the organ first? Uh, what was first, early music, clavichord? Or organ for you? Well, actually, first it was the harpsichord. Harpsichord, great. Yes, uh, I was a piano student. Um, I had been taking piano lessons for some years and was thinking about going forward as a as a piano uh, major, piano uh, prof uh, per professional. Um, and I was uh, 13 years old. My mother brought home from the supermarket uh, the, the LP, a very cheap LP that was called harpsichord greatest hits mm -hmm. and the sound on that disc changed my life um there was just something about it that i couldn't get out of my head and just felt like i had to hear that sound and to make that sound um and so i uh, bought a clavichord kit and then a harpsichord kit and made them for myself when i was in high school and because i was living close to boston there were uh, many uh, resources in that direction and so I was able to uh, start harpsichord lessons when I was 14 years old. And wow, that's, that's amazing because, uh, you know, you mentioned you were 13 years old, yes, when encountered the harpsichord first. That is right. sort of very formative, don't you think? Absolutely. Uh, 
with with our guests on this podcast i i sort of remember this age of 13 something really happens between 12 and 13 or 15 years old when somebody really either introduced to the um, instrument in in this case organ sometimes in the in your case the harpsichord uh, either the recording was being bought or uh, some wise person takes uh, the uh, the this uh, this teenager right to the organ loft um, so i'm so glad that somebody really inspired you and uh, and uh, you know, gave this privilege of, of getting a glimpse into this fascinating new world. Or oh, absolutely. Let's say old world, right? Yeah. Yes. Yes. Great. Yeah. Did um, you did you did you did you know right away that the harpsichord will be your your first love? No, um, I. It was definitely a very strong love of mine. Mm-hmm. Um, I can't say that I did not love the piano. Um, but there was, again, something about the sensibility of early music and just the sound of the harpsichord that really captured my attention. And um, I uh, felt very strongly that I wanted to do that, and, uh, but my parents thought that that was impractical, and so I entered the New England Conservatory as a piano major. But all the time I was also taking harpsichord and then organ lessons as well. Um, and then it was, it didn't take long for me to realize that my heart was not in the piano. Mm-hmm. And so I changed, uh, I, I finished off my degree early in order to be able to continue as an organ major for my master's degree. But then also at the same time, I was taking and playing, taking harpsichord lessons and playing the harpsichord very much as well. Mm-hmm. Did you have any other interest besides music at that time? Oh, no, <laughs> absolutely not. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it was all music all the time. You know, uh, sometimes people love, you know, uh, sports, right, at that age. Sometimes they're into building things, like uh, uh, something uh, building with their hands. I remember Gene Bidian, the organ builder, uh, who was a very good uh, friend of mine and mentor, uh, told the story that he he built things with his hand and was very interested in how things worked. So uh, not, it's not no uh, accident that he ended up in building instruments, right? Right. Well, I, of course, I was making those harpsichord kits, and I did discover that I enjoyed that process as well. And so I was making, I, once I made my first harpsichord and my first clavichord, I didn't stop there. Mm-hmm. Um, I made a virginal for myself. I made another harpsichord, another harpsichord, another harpsichord. Um, and uh, in, worked as a harpsichord builder, actually, after I graduated for another 10 years. So I did have a very strong interest in building harpsichords and maintaining them, fooling around with them, fixing them. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Do you remember what, is the, what was the first piece you played on the harpsichord? It was the Italian concerto of J.S. Bach. Mm, wonderful piece. And uh, very, very much uh, loved by his contemporaries, right? Uh, yes. This was a debate. You remember the debate uh, between uh, his, uh, his uh, critic, right? And uh, of one of his students, students defending him and uh, the critic sort of uh, um, uh, bouncing back and forth with, with various opinions about uh, his style, whether he was worthy or not. Do you, can, you, can you share the details a little bit for our listeners of that story? Well, I remember that it, the, um, I mean, I'm not sure. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of them was Scheibe, the other was Birnbaum. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And that, uh, you know, I think Scheibe was criticizing Bach's style as being too complicated. And uh-huh. Birnbaum said, you know, what's wrong with that? Uh, there's uh, plenty to be um, uh, 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 appreciated about that. It, of course, as a 14-year-old, I didn't know any of this. Right. The Italian concerto was a wonderful piece. I loved the middle movement, so beautiful and expressive. Um, and it wasn't until much later when I studied the Bach transcriptions of the Vivaldi concertos that I realized that, you know, Bach was very much um, uh, taken by this style mm-hmm. um, and that he, um, of course, couldn't leave well enough alone after he had uh, transcribed all of the uh, Vivaldi and some other con- concertos uh, for keyboard. Um, when he wrote his own, it was far more complicated and far more um, involved than any of the Italian pieces that he'd worked with. Um, and that you can still see it there, 
but you know it's it's hard when you see Bach the the Bach is so complete in itself. It's hard sometimes to see what the influences are behind it. Um, and it's as though he takes all these ingredients and mixes them so finely that it becomes something new. Um, and I think that's the, the genius of it. I mean, it's like a, I'm fond of saying that Bach is like a uh, musical fusion chef, that he takes all these different kinds of musical uh, food and turns them into a completely new dish. Um, where you can sometimes tell what the original elements are, but not always. Mm -hmm. So, Peter, uh, it looks like Bach really was a very formative figure for you. Am I Absolutely. right? Absolutely. Absolutely, yeah. Um, I think that uh, certainly um, um, I was very much, when I played the piano, I loved Mozart and Haydn. Um, mm -hmm. I, as a as an early piano student, I didn't like Bach very much because it was so hard Um, and it uh, sounded so simple when you finally learned it, you know, but it was so, so difficult um, to, to play initially. Um, but with a little more maturity, I realized that uh, the hard work was worth it. Um, and, uh, and of course, Bach also played all kinds of keyboard instruments, right? Like, just like you. Just like That's you. true. That's true. And one um, instrument complemented each other, right? The clavichord, absolutely. harpsichord, and harpsichord organ, and vice versa. So it's sort of very helpful for an organist to know all kinds of keyboard instruments, don't you think? Today? Oh, yeah. I, especially, I think, in this day and age, being a musician is enough of a specialty. You know, if you say only play one instrument and then only one repertoire within that instrument, that is really a um, very uh, um, very narrow viewpoint. Um, I remember a friend of mine um, who was an organist who only played um, Vierne and Vidor and Dupre. Mm -hmm. um, he said, you early music people are so narrow. Mm -hmm. It just struck me as being such a funny statement. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's a joke, good joke. <laughs> yeah. No, on the other hand... Um, Uh, being a very an expert in a very narrow field like like Vierne and Vidor and Dupre, or even just the the expert on one composer only, right, uh, gives you an edge, right, that nobody else perhaps has has, right. Don't well, you? I think I, I think that there's certainly a lot to be said for being motivated by a love of the music. Mm -hmm. That if you really feel as though your soul resonates with a particular composer or the sound of a particular style of instrument then you should really go with that you know of course that it, it means that you feel a very strong affinity for that instrument or for that sound um, or for that music um, and that uh, certainly being a specialist in one thing doesn't mean you should be unfamiliar with everything else right um, and, and and so you know I, i like to think of myself as being a specialist in music um, and, and in that way there's no music that I would try not to understand. Mm -hmm. um, and that in a way, of course, any piece that I perform, I have to love it uh, in order to perform it. And mm -hmm. so I have to, if I don't love it right away, I have to learn to love it. I have right. to figure out what it is about it that I can um, really identify with in order to feel uh, as though the performance is meaningful. Mm -hmm. It's sort of a circle. Do what you love, love you what you do, right? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. But, you know, especially, um, you know, organists and harpsichordists, we have to play so many different instruments. We don't often own um, our own instruments. Nobody owns their own um, uh, uh, organ uh, to uh, perform with. Uh, and that I think that certainly um, we need to learn how to bond with mm -hmm. a lot of different um, uh, elements, um, uh, the room, uh, the instrument, the music, all these things come together and they're all ingredients that will end up with a complete performance. Isn't that a great thing that we can really try out different instruments and they are all so, so varied, so unique, right, in our world? Ab absolutely, absolutely. You know, there's, uh, there's certainly uh, a lot of inspiration that can be gotten from encountering a wonderful instrument. Mm -hmm. um, and it doesn't have to be an old one. They've played so many wonderful new instruments that give you new uh, insights on the music. Uh, you know, I, I think that uh, you know, there's a common saying that you play a really wonderful instrument and people say, oh, it makes me sound better than I really am. And I always say, no, no, it makes you sound as good as you really are. 
Mm -hmm. um, that we all have that potential within us. We just need the right circumstances to bring it out. Mm -hmm. Right. So uh, you are in in such a great uh, admiration of Bach's uh, talent and genius, right? What was the first organ piece that you mastered? Do you remember? Oh, golly. Um, I started to play the organ when I was 16, mm -hmm. and um, I had a very good, strict teacher that told that gave me a good old-fashioned organ schooling, learning how to do finger substitution and legato and all these things that and 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 trio exercises from the very start, um, things that were really hard for me. Um, I think actually one of the first organ pieces of, of that I played was also a Bach piece. It was the um, G major fantasy. Um, uh, the pièce d'orgue, you mean? Pièce d'orgue, yeah. That, wow, that that's not very easy piece, right? Although you had a great piano background and the harpsichord background, right? So, yes. so you you probably was pre were pre prepared for that. Piece. Well, the key to it is that the pedal part is not hard. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, you know, it doesn't have a very fast moving or involved pedal part. Mm -hmm. um, I'm, I'm so. <clears throat> that meant that uh, it was a piece that I, yeah, and you're right. I mean, there are certain pieces, um, you know, when I first learned the, the Roybke Sonata, I found it very easy because it was a piece that has a very developed manual part, but the pedal part's kind of rudimentary. Uh -huh. um, you can tell that it's a pianist that wrote that. Right, right. Um, and, and, you know, a piece of Rager, on the other hand, is very different, uh, where all the parts are very uh, involved and uh, moving together. That Those things are... Um, Definitely, a uh, th th that was much harder for me mm -hmm, mm -hmm. when I started. And um, do you remember uh, the first organ that you tried out? Of course, you had experience with different clavichords or harpsichords beforehand, right? What was the yes. first organ for you? The first organ, I, uh, well, this is, uh, again, I'm very lucky. Um, it, it was before I knew anything about anything. Um, my piano teacher, when I was uh, um, seven, eight, nine years old, was an organist in a church. And um, this was on Cape Cod in Massachusetts. Mm -hmm. And um, she thought I'd be interested in trying this organ. It was a, an English organ made in 1762 by John Snetzler mm -hmm. in the Congregational Church of South Dennis, Massachusetts. One manual organ had um, tiny little pedals uh, like a, a French organ, mm -hmm. um, just pulled down through the bottom octave. Um, and it was a real, you know, Baroque organ. It had been restored in the 60s by Charles Fisk. And um, I remember thinking that it was very strange. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, I, I couldn't get used to the touch because it had a pluck, um, you know, being a tracker organ. And the piano action is so smooth by comparison. Um, I just, it just felt really strange to me and I didn't know what to do with it. Mm -hmm. um, so that was, that was the first organ that I played, but I didn't play it as an organist. I played mm -hmm. it as a piano student with no comprehension. Fantastic uh, to be able to start your organ journey with an organ from 18th century, right? Yeah. <laughs> yes, Even indeed. though you didn't, didn't know the significance of that instrument, right? Precisely. We have to mention that uh, uh, in America, there are not too many instruments from the 18th century, right? Uh, no. One, one of them being at Cape Cod, of course, but uh, it's like right from the Tannenberg's era. Of course, Tannenberg was... German, right? And right. Uh, and uh, that tradition that you mentioned is English. It's it's completely from another uh, European um, perspective, right? Con right. Uh, continental and uh, English, right? Right. Um, did well, you I mean, mind you? I had I had no comprehension of any of that, and I don't think she did either. Mm -hmm. um, she was a, she was a pianist, and um, you know a lot of people you know, just play the organ any old way. Um, I think that, uh, you know, since then there have been organists of that church that can recognize and appreciate what the organ really represents. And of course, when I go and visit now, you know, it's fantastic. It's like, oh my God, you know, this, this beautiful um, English chamber organ in this country church. Do you still remember your first feeling, your first encounter from those early days when you go today to that instrument and play, you know, completely differently? Oh, Yeah. Yeah, I mean, um, certainly I, I had my first church job playing for services when I was 16. Um, and that where I was living, there were three or four churches where I would go around and practice. And of course, you know, when you're a teenager playing an organ 
piece that's grand, you know, you feel like God, you feel so, you know, important and powerful and the sound is so wonderful. You can't believe that you're the one making that sound. Mm -hmm. Um, And, uh, you know, although I will say that some of the organs that I played had electric action and a delay, and that was so weird. I just couldn't get used to the idea that it sort of felt like an out-of-body experience that you'd be playing and the sound would be coming, but there was no relationship in a way between the two. Um, And that that was something that took me a long time to get used to, and I don't think I'll ever get used to it. Um, I think that it's just just, was a very, um, another element that I'd never thought of. Mm Mm-hmm. And what happened later? Uh, uh, where did your career started to to take shape uh, uh, in terms of uh, you being prepared for the harpsichord, clavichord, and organ career? Well, um, I, uh, as I said, I got a master's degree in organ from the New England Conservatory. Mm-hmm. Um, which at that time was very early music friendly. There was a lot of activity going back and forth between organ and harpsichord. A lot of people played both instruments. Um, and I continued after that in Montreal, studying with Bernard de Mary Lacasse. And of course, that was a strong early music influence as well. But I also studied romantic contemporary and contemporary music there mm-hmm. at the same time. Um, and so I uh, just, I followed my passion. I just mm-hmm. wanted to, play that repertoire, wanted to play concerts, I wanted to uh, teach, um, and I just continued to do all those things, but I had to make harpsichords in order to pay my bills. Mm-hmm. Uh, at New England Conservatory, was that the time when, uh, when Bill Porter was there? This was before then. Before? Um, that was before. Uh, the, the teachers, when I was a student there, were Yuko Hayashi and Robert Schuneman and um, Frank Taylor, and um, Mirai Lagasse also was one of the orchid teachers. This was uh, before 1980. Mm-hmm. Uh, sometimes uh, when we look at those great times when the organ program and early music program was such an important um, you know, part of that um, conservatory, uh, today it's, it's a little bit sad, right? When, when they closed the, the, um, that it's not really today. It's 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 it was in uh, either two thousand or two thousand. Uh, it was in two thousand three. Three, right? Noticed, that they I know this very well because mm-hmm. I was the member of the faculty at that mm-hmm. point. Right. Um, when the when the school closed, the organ department. Um, right. Kristen Rakich and I were the two organ teachers. Um, that's that's. Uh, was that because of of the general trend of uh, lack of interest in organ? performance in organ music across the, the country and across the basically Western civilized world or, uh, or just, it's, it's just um, a local phenomenon. How, what do you think? Um, I, well, it, of course uh, there are many factors. I think that it was presented to us primarily as an economic decision. Mm-hmm. Um, the conservatory is a, um, not an institution that's uh, uh, part of a university doesn't have outside funding sources. Um, other schools were um, building their organ departments and the conservatory felt that they couldn't be competitive. Um, the school didn't own a concert organ um, for the students to perform on. Um, and uh, they just uh, had to make an economic decision. Voice students and violin students are much cheaper because they bring their own instruments with them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. I also think that there was a certain lack of sympathy in the administration for the aesthetic of the organ. Mm-hmm. Um, they were really turning, I think they were trying to work the school into a position of being a, a strong string school, romantic music and that sort of thing. Um, so uh, when the uh, department was closed, um, Krista Rakic and I decided as colleagues to, in a way, show that the uh, repertoire of the music was still vital. Um, and so we put on together, just ourselves, a concert series in which the two of us played the entire works of Bach mm-hmm. um, in 34 concerts over two years. Uh, we did it all as fundraisers for charity um, and got quite a following towards the end. Um, but it was a wonderful, and we both played for every concert. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, the, so some mixed organ and harpsichord, some all harpsichord, some all organ. Um, and that uh, to have the experience of either hearing or playing all of Bach's music, which you know nobody knows everything, 
Mm-hmm. Um, but I've heard everything and I've played half of it. Um, it's really, you know, I think that that was a very formative experience for me to gain that perspective. Um, and, and we showed, you know, that uh, Bach and, and the organ and the harpsichord still matter. Mm-hmm. That's completely true. And uh, for your following, right, for your listeners, for your future fans, it's so important that you didn't give up, right? You, you sort of created like a phoenix from the ashes. ashes. You, you rose, right, and created... That was, you know, that was our hope. That was our hope. You know, we, we felt that uh, certainly um, Bach's music uh, had such a feeling of sharing, of, of wanting to make the world a better place that we felt strongly not to charge, but to only have donations and to give the money away to shelters and homeless places and things like that. Um, by it was over, we raised over $20,000. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was uh, just a, a wonderful experience. Oh, you know, and that meant that we were, both of us playing a half of a concert every two weeks. Every um, two weeks, right. Every two weeks, yeah. So it was, a, um, it was also a, a way of, of getting in practice. And, okay, yeah. You know. It's a it's, it's, uh, very demanding schedule to play uh, at least half, uh, half of a program, but every two weeks, right? It's like uh, the full program every month, right? Right, right, exactly. And, and you know, people assumed that uh, we would fight over pieces and say, oh, I want to play this one. And it was the exact opposite. You know, I'd say to her, oh, you play the fourth trio sonata so beautifully. You should do that one. We always would give each other the pieces we didn't want to play. Um, Fun. And so it was, it, it was a wonderful experience. Mm-hmm. And, and we, we, we sort of promised each other that in 10 years we would revisit the idea and th- see if we could do it again. And we both decided at that time that um, we didn't need to. That there was enough going on um, mm-hmm. and that uh, – it was a, a time in our lives both where we were busy doing so many other things that mm-hmm. we couldn't fit it in. Do you remember uh, those days when you pre- were preparing for those recitals, uh, Bach, all Bach recitals? What was the most important thing that you learned from, from those preparations? Um, mostly I would say how to learn, um, how to be able to really feel in two weeks that I could learn something new. Um, mm-hmm. I always remember, I tell the story to my students all the time, um, towards the end, there were some miscellaneous pieces. You know, there are a lot of fugettas and capriccios that you sort of pass over when you're going through the book. Um, but we had to learn them all. Mm-hmm. So there was this capriccio, I think, um, that was three pages long. It was not really hard, but it was not something that you could just sight read either. And I sort of gave myself a, a test, and I said, in my preparation for this, um, for the first week and a half, I will not play it faster than half tempo. Uh-huh. I will only play it at half tempo, slowly every time. I'll do it once or twice, and then I'll stop because I, I could play it perfectly at half tempo. You know, it wasn't that hard. Um, and then at the three days before the concert, I thought, well, I better learn to play it <laughs> up to tempo. Um, and I didn't try to sort of like do it gradually. I just thought. I'll see what happens. And it was perfect the first time. And that I realized that in our practicing, we tend to struggle so much in trying to advance the tempo as we go, that we're always struggling when we practice. We never make it easy for ourselves. And that it's so important when you're practicing to make it easy and to make it beautiful and to make it something that you feel successful about rather than feeling as though you're always failing. Um, And so uh, working that way, is something that was really uh, a, a big inspiration to me mm-hmm. um, to, to realize that when you learn, you have to have fun. Mm-hmm. And when you learn, you shouldn't be um, struggling. You shouldn't be uh, uh, trying to do something you can't do just yet. Um, and you should practice in many more ways than just trying to play it. Mm-hmm. Well, it's just, it's just a deep insight, right? Um, I hope uh, people uh, take notice of this uh, this idea of uh, playing at half tempo, at least half tempo, for a long time before they advance to the real tempo. Do you think, Peter, that people struggle with the tempo issues because of fear of reaching that fast tempo? Well, I think that uh, one of the problems with keyboard music in general is that it's complete in itself and that we can imagine playing the entire thing all by ourselves before we really can. And that if you were a flutist or a violinist, you wouldn't play your piece all the way through without the accompanist because that would be weird. 
Um, so you practice bits and you always are working on getting the bits of the piece better and you only put it together when your accompanist is there. And that I've started to um, try for myself to say, the accompanist isn't here today. I need to practice in such a way as to really work on the elements of the piece rather than trying to experience it as a whole before I'm really ready to do that. Mm-hmm. And so um, I think that, uh, I think one of the things, I mean, we, we tend, I think it's mostly just ambition. Uh, most of our problems in practicing come from overachieving, trying to do too much too fast, too soon. Um, and that uh, if we can just pull back a little bit and um, experience where we are and try to make that as complete and as perfect as we can at that moment, then the next moment will take care of itself. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And you know, Peter, when you have such a great experiment uh, of uh, playing all Bach uh, keyboard forks right over the certain period of time, you, your great ideas come to life, right? You try to try to invent some some new methods of practice, right? You 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 teach yourself new and efficient ways to adjust, right, and to prepare, and perhaps to sight read, right? Um, I also remember. Uh, myself uh, preparing for the entire recital, sitting here at home uh, on my at my uh, summer uh, summer cottage. You know, we have just piano here, but uh, intentionally I didn't use the piano. I only used the table. Did you yeah. ever uh, uh, practice on the table? Table. It it was so uh, revelation revelatory to for me that it was just as. Perfect preparation uh, on the table, on uh, mostly mental practice, right? Absolutely. Without the instrument, and it worked. It worked. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. One of the things I um, have my students do and do myself when I remember um, is that you don't have to push the keys down in order to practice. Mm-hmm. Just practice by touching them um, and tapping the top of the key. Don't push it down, but make sure that you know that you're on the right place through your touch alone. Um, and to have the sound that you hear be the confirmation of something that you already know. Mm-hmm. Um, that, that puts it in your body in a way that I think is really useful. And I understand that that was the way Glenn Gould learned every piece. Mm-hmm. Before he would make a sound, he would be able to play it without making a sound. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that, you know, of course, there are so many various elements of, um, you know, the sound and the, the physicality of playing. Uh, that we have to practice all of these things in various ways. Mm-hmm. And of course, um, although people think various uh, various ideas about um, Glenn Gould today, right? But he was really uh, out out there in his in in his way of playing uh, when he was uh, practicing. He was, was uh, like a pioneer, right? In those uh, in his touch, right? Although his well, touch was really like a, a very very uh, dry, right? I will say this, yes. no one ever heard him play a wrong note. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That's a very, a very important thing to, to notice, right? He was like a, like a living legend, right? But even when he practiced the, uh, those things without touching the, the keyboard, uh, without touching and uh, without sounding, right? As you say, uh, don't you think that his inner sense of hearing and listening to the music improved as well. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. No, I'm, I'm often very um, uh, impressed when I hear um, people who play only the organ mm-hmm. and only study the organ, um, when they play the piano or the, even the clavichord or harpsichord, how little tonal imagination sometimes they have um, because the sound is always given to them complete and ready-made. And that there's something about having to sort of imagine the sound first and then working with the sound that you get in order to try and make something happen that is real rather than just accepting what's there and, and having that be your answer. I think that you have to ask a lot of questions first. You mentioned imagining the sound first. It's, it's, I think uh, this is is a very important idea for us to notice, right? We just simply touch the keyboard and and it plays, right? But if you if you hear the sound before it appears, is something else happens, right? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Um, and at the same time, of course, it is very different playing the organ or harpsichord 
um, than playing the, the piano or clavichord. I mean, the, those instruments, the sound is there. Um, there's a certain, there are things you can do to change it, but not so much, you know, it's, it, you know, um, and that I, I tell my students that what we have to become in that regard is very fine observers mm-hmm. that we have to really appreciate and hear into the sound that is there and react to it. And that if we are able to let the sound affect us and really feel as though it is shaping our perception, then our performance takes that in Mm -hmm. and makes the sound be part of the message. And that I could always tell, I mean, it's just a question of listening, you know, and then you can say, listen, but what does that mean really? You know, and I think that it has a lot to do with feeling as though you love the sound. I mean, I remember hearing a, uh, or reading a, uh, description of Handel's playing um, where it said the, the author said that it was clear that he was cherishing every note mm. that he played and that the idea of, of really loving the sound and, and feeling as though that's part of your experience, you know, that the listener is the first, the number one listener is the performer um, and that they are having a dialogue with the sound and a dialogue with the music. And, and, that, and it changes everything, right? Uh, so, when the yeah. performer is so so sensitive, right, and uh, uh, listening to each and every sound uh, he makes or she makes, uh, we all hear and meet organists, for example, who play the organ like uh, like uh, blasting through the keyboard, right, fast and mm-hmm. loud, um, making. Uh, of course, that's very impressive, right, and virtuoso performers. Uh, People love that to watch, right? Uh, especially if they can uh, watch their feet, right? And their movements, and if they play from memory, it's like a big circus, right? Mm-hmm. But uh, other than that, uh, not too many people listen. Well, that's it. And, you know, I, I think of it as a matter of responsibility, that you need to take responsibility for the sound that you make. Mm-hmm. Um, and that uh, if, you're, if you're involved in it, then it's communication. And if you're not involved in it, and it's a show. Mm-hmm. Deeply said and well put. Uh, and music is f- first and foremost a form of communication, right? Of course. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Of course. Not entertainment. or no. p- Partly it can be entertainment, of course, just like any form of communication. Mm-hmm. But uh, it's, it's maybe a small part of that, right? Well, I mean, you know, um, there are there are uh, tragic plays. There are comic plays. Um, you, there's stand-up comedy. I mean, we use words to communicate so many different states of being. Um, there's popular music. There's serious music. All of these things have a place. Um, but I think it's a question of finding the right way to say the message that you say. Fantastic. And uh, Peter, of course, uh, in earlier days, composers... And performers knew the rhetorical figures of speech, right? They knew that from Latin, uh, Latin education that they um, received uh, in their uh, early days, right? In Latin schools, uh, I'm talking about not only about Bach, but Buxtehude, Scheidemann, any other composers that, that created something uh, in the Baroque language medium, they not only put the notes together, but they um, tra- tra- basically transmitted ideas. And not, not only musical ideas, but uh, rhetorical ideas. Uh, and uh, to some degree, uh, their uh, well, well-educated listeners also could understand what they are uh, writing or playing, which is not the case today, probably. Well, of course, you use the word education. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, everyone in my family was a teacher. Mm-hmm. Um, and I am a teacher. Uh, I use the way of music of teaching. And of course, um, it's a very fashionable thing to cry about the state of education today. Um, but when I contrast what I have experienced or what I think I know, um, about the way people were educated in the past. You know, their minds were formed in ways that helped them to know how to think and how to process information and how to organize things so that they could communicate coherently. Mm-hmm. Um, I'll always remember when I was in junior high school and started to take French, 
I realized that I had never been taught English um, and that the way in which one learns a language, you know, has to have a structure. Um, and that if you don't have a structure in education and if your mind doesn't have to have a structure, then what all education means is that you're looking for answers. And that I think that a lot of education today is just wanting people to get the right answer and not have to think about why it's the right answer mm -hmm. or what they're going to do. And so it's, everything feels very disconnected. Um, and that I think that uh, certainly I have been trying to educate myself my whole life um, in one way or another in terms of learning how to think, mm -hmm. learning how to um, understand um, information in a way that helps me to relate to what there is in the past and how it is that I relate to people today. The running joke in today's education circles is um, is this: um, I I I won't let uh, education. I don't. I won't let the school interfere with my education. You know, <laughs> <laughs> because education can be uh, done not only in the classroom uh, setting, but. Uh, Across across your day, and uh, basically, not only in when when you are young or um, or teenager, but whenever you really you want, right? Well, I, there's a uh, sometimes around here. There's a bumper sticker you see in the back of a car that says, "It's never too late to have a happy childhood," and I would say it's never too late to go back to first grade. Um, it's never too late to learn something new. Um, it's never too late to, to feel as though you need to um, expand mm -hmm. your mind. Um, um, and that uh, I think that, you know, the way in which we uh, approach children today is, is the most important thing in the world. Mm -hmm. I think uh, the students have to, um, uh, we have to teach students in a different way so that they won't ask questions such as, uh, will this be on the test? You know, exactly. that's a exactly. it's a dreadful question that any teacher can receive, right? Because mm -hmm. if it's on the test, yes, our mind is on. But if it's not, forget it, right? It's not important. No. Sometimes I answer that question by saying, "Yes, it is going to be on the test of life." Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. True, true, true. Well, and then how the students respond to this? Oh, they don't understand. They don't. <laughs> I think I'm just being joking. Yeah. But once in a while, you, you still um, meet uh, intelligent students, intelligent enough students to have a, a meaningful conversation and sort of um, uh, in a deep way, right? So oh, once absolutely. in a while, they can get your joke too. Oh, absolutely. No, there, there are many, many people that I've worked with along the years that I mm -hmm. think of as being my spiritual children. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, people that um, I've really connected with on a very deep level, um, intellectually and musically. And that... Uh, Certainly, that's one of the most rewarding experiences a person can have, is to feel kinship, uh, to feel understood, to feel as though you've helped someone understand themselves. Have you ever played a concert specifically for children? Hmm. Probably. <laughs> I don't because really... I don't really remember, and uh, not recently. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. It's so different, right, than the adult uh, audience, right? Because adults are sort of stiff and dry and uh, and uh, normal, right? But kids, kids are always curious. They they will come to you. They will ask fantastic questions that you even can't answer at the at, uh, on the spot sometimes, right? Oh yeah, and, and they're totally honest. They are honest, yeah. They do so uh, when people complain um, about the deteriorating state of the organ art in the Western society, uh, I try to be a little bit po positive about that and say, um, why don't you not only not about you, Peter, but uh, about that person? Uh, why don't you or we take initiative and introduce the organ, or in your case, a clavichord, harpsichord, right, uh, to the younger audience? Uh, connect with music teachers and schools and say. How about uh, you coming, guys, uh, to our church, and, and I will demonstrate the organ live for you, right? And take and open the panels, uh, uh, we'll, we'll fix some ciphers and blow some pipes, and you kids can even touch the organ with your hands and feet. So that, that's very, very uh, positive attitude. Uh, sometimes gives the results in a way that people 
sometimes uh, uh, come up to me and say, "Oh, sir, can how can I learn to, to practice the organ? Who 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 can I contact? Where you know is the possibility to 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 enter this career?" Right. 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 Well, I, I play in a church, and um, there are a number of families that sit very close to the organ console just for that reason mm-hmm. um, that their children are fascinated. And they come up every Sunday after the service, and I play for them a little bit, and I let them play sometimes. You know that's uh, that these are the uh, this is this is the way you get them. Um, this is the way that they are able to um, really feel like it's uh, something that they could be part of. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And there is a tendency to think that kids are only interested in electronics and uh, you know iPads and iPhones and gadgets and uh, Pokemon Go and this these things, right? Mm-hmm. But it's not always true, right? Sometimes the real music making is so inspiring and transforming for them too. I remember um, talking to Wayne Leopold uh, recently on this podcast, and he has, you know, his uh, long. He has a tremendous mission. Tremendous missions, uh, not only to edit and publish music, but in his church, um, he has organist assistant program, which means that he invites kids from the church to push, push pistons and uh, turn pages for the organist mm-hmm. and see the action up from up close. That's also very, very uh, inspiring for young kids, I think. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, so sometimes I think, uh, uh, and it doesn't need any funds, any resources, right? No, mm-hmm. no money, additional finances, right? It just takes a little bit thinking about uh, about the problem in a different way, uh, about the problem, not as a, cha- a challenge and a problem, but as an opportunity, right? Absolutely, absolutely. Mm-hmm. So, Peter, um, uh, what are you? Uh, uh, challenged by now, what what are you practicing, and what is your uh, project today, your current project? Well, uh, I have some concerts coming up, and I'm starting to practice for them. You know, at the end of the summer to get ready for the um, the winter kind of things. Um, I have a few recording projects uh, that I'm thinking about. Nothing um, set yet, uh, but uh, some things that I'd like to do, um, and uh, I'm trying to always. Uh, stay ahead of my students um, to try and uh, uh, learn new things. I'm becoming more and more interested in improvisation. Um, I've been doing more research in that regard and doing little seminars um, and using it in myself, my own work, uh, both as a continual player and as a church position. Um, I think that uh, certainly there are a lot of very wonderful young new players um, the, the level of music making, the level of instrument building, I don't think it's ever been higher. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that the understanding and the sophistication and the awareness and the knowledge is, is so wonderful right now mm-hmm. that um, it's a very great time to be an organist. It's a great time to be a harpsichordist um, because uh, everybody gets it. You know, the people that are in the field are very um, aware and, and I don't think that, um, you know, they're, they're not fighting with each other so much, so much anymore. Um, and it, it's, uh, it's wonderful to see such collegiality and such wonderful level of music making. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, tremendous, uh, tremendous uh, importance of uh, music making today and many opportunities to do that, right? Uh, m- many more than, than maybe 30 or 50 years ago, right? Uh, in today's world, uh, especially in early music uh, field. Um, so, Peter, uh, if you had a chance uh, to, um, to live your life the second time, would you, <laughs> it's a hypothetical, of course, question, but sometimes it's I- interesting to know, uh, would you choose the same path for yourself? Or would you do something different that, than, other than early music? Um, and that's really hard to say. I mean, of course, you know, um, I'm in a position now where I can give thanks for every step that it is that brought me to the place where I am now. Um, not, I wasn't always happy in the past in different ways, um, but that in the end, um, you have to sort of take in all of what has happened. Um, and uh, I, I certainly am, I, I wouldn't be 
in finance, you know, I wouldn't be someone who is just um, doing uh, things to make money. I think I would always be involved with people mm-hmm. in one way or another. Mm-hmm. And um, of course, uh, when you think about music and people and communicating and um, uh, expressing yourself, uh, what would be the number one thing you wish you knew when you first started uh, playing? Hmm. Is there anything that would have helped you? I think mostly just to love it for its own sake and not to worry about what job I had mm-hmm. or what concert I played. Um, I think that, you know, I mean, young people tend to be ambitious and tend to want to be famous or um, somehow well-known. Um, you know, I think that certainly our field doesn't, the, the world doesn't give our field very much affirmation. If it had been a long, young law student, then there would be law firms coming to graduation, giving us offers, you know, the path towards professional development would be very clear. Um, and in this field, everyone is on their own. There's no, uh, uh, very little mentorship past school. Um, you know, it's just a question of figuring out, you know, and that it takes a lot of patience. And I think everyone will say that there were some dark years mm-hmm. along the way where they didn't really know if it was worth it. Mm-hmm. Um, and that I think that uh, sometimes it just takes a, a matter of, of patience or feeling as though there's nothing else I can do. There's nothing else I want to do um, that, uh, that you just have to keep doing it no matter what. Mm-hmm. And it's ups and downs, right? The ups and downs and the ups are sometimes uh, fantastic and downs are sometimes very frustrating, but we know that, that the good times will some, uh, sometime come. In the future, well, and you have you have to take the long view um, that you know the 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 down neither the down nor the up are it. Um, you know what what you experience as a whole is made up of all those things, but it's not just any of them. Um, and that uh, finding a way of, of finding balance, you know, I think it's very hard for many musicians to find any sort of balance in their lives. And I struggle with that all the time. Mm-hmm. Fantastic ideas, fantastic insights, um, Peter, today. I hope people will uh, get uh, get to know you fr- uh, from your work uh, more deeply also. Can you mention, uh, people, the link uh, the, where they can find and connect with you and your work online? It's very simple, www.petersykes.com. Great. I will make sure I will put uh, this link into the description of this conversation too. Um, thank you so much, uh, Peter. You're very generous and um, very, I think, uh, uh, very uh, creative about thinking about practice, how to approach uh, playing the instrument, listening it, right? Uh, listening before even uh, making the sound. And all of these ideas will be tremendous inspiration for the people. So I wish you a tremendous creative way, uh, uh, year for you and uh, stay in good health. Thank you very much. If you liked this conversation, I encourage you to visit my blog Secrets of Organ Playing at organduo.lt where you will find lots of insights, practical advice and training for every area of organ playing. You can subscribe to this blog for free to get your daily dose of inspiration and to be the first to know when any of my future podcasts roll out. I hope to help you reach your dreams in organ playing. I'm Vidas Pinkavitus. Thanks for listening and I'll catch you online really soon.